The following audio is from Solid Rock Community Church. More information about Solid Rock Community Church is available at www.solidrockcommunitychurch.com. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see all of you this morning. It's so good to be with you again. I'm very grateful for another chance to come and speak to my Solid Rock Church family. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for inviting me once again. Um, I heard the big announcement from last week, as I'm sure many of you did, about Pastor Dave and Kathy's plan to retire. And uh, I know this is a huge deal to many of you. It is to me as well. Um, And, I mean, we're talking about the founding pastors of this congregation deciding to pass the torch. And I, I know with how fresh this news is, there's sure to be a lot of uncertainty and probably even some fear. Um, there always is with change, especially big change. But there are a few things that I am certain of that I want to reassure you with this morning. The first thing is this. There's nobody more deserving of retirement than Pastor Dave and Kathy. Yeah. They've, they've poured their hearts and souls into this body for over 20 years now. And you guys, this is unheard of in this day and age. The average lifespan of a lead pastor in a given church is two years. I know, that's, that's crazy. And anyone who's been involved in vocational ministry, they kind of get the idea of why it's, um, you may not know this, but it's pretty stressful. It's not just like you, you sit in an office and, and plan a sermon, and that's all you do. Um, the stress and the pressures of overseeing hundreds of people, dozens of families, teaching and preaching week in and week out, and always wondering, you know, what's next week going to be, and am I ready and especially having to deal with the business side of running a nonprofit organization with employees and with bills to pay, it's taxing. And so I think we take it for granted how amazing it is that two people would remain so committed and invested for over two decades to this endeavor. So I'm certain that this is God's plan for Pastor Dave and Kathy to get to step off the metaphoric hamster wheel and uh, take a break, smell the roses, travel, spend so much time with their amazing family, all their grandkids. Um, and of course, this doesn't mean they're done ministering. It's just a transition in the way that they will continue to minister. Who knows how God will continue to use them once they have the freedom to look beyond that daily grind and um, that, that weekly preparation. Um, Pastor Dave said last week he believes Solid Rock's best days are ahead, and I completely agree with that. And I also think some of your best days are ahead as well, Pastor. Um, God's not done with you yet, as you know. And anyone who's ever gone for a run with Pastor knows he's not ready to slow down either. (laughs) So can we show some love again for Pastor Dave and Kathy this morning? I said there's a couple things I'm certain of. The other thing I am certain of is Solid Rock is in good hands. Pastor mentioned last week that it was never his church. You know, this was never and is not the McBroom Assembly, if you will. Um, you are God's church, as Pastor Dave has preached his entire time here. And God will ensure that his plans are accomplished in and through this body. I know uncertainty and change can be daunting, but when you truly understand who's in charge, you can rest assured it's going to be all right. So thank you for hearing me out on that. I felt not only the need to reassure some of you, um, but I also felt compelled to honor Pastor Dave and Kathy as, as they deserve. So I think I know most of you this morning. There are a few new faces, um, and it's also always hard to see people with the lights. But um, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet each other yet, you're probably wondering who I am. And then if you weren't here last week, you're probably in a whole world of confusion, so I'm sorry for that. 
I feel a quick introduction is in order, or maybe a refresher for those of you who have already started to forget me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I had the honor of serving here as a youth pastor for just about five years, as Pastor mentioned, um, from 2012 to 2017. And in that time, I met, dated, and married my beautiful wife, Chelsea. Um, she was in medical school at the time at UW um, and served alongside me, side by side, every week. Um, uh, for the latter three years of, of our time here. And the summer of 2017, our whole life took a, a new direction. Um, first of all, our son Sawyer was born. Hi, Sawyer. <laughs> um, one of the best things that's ever happened in my life, and I'm sure if you're a parent, you would, you'd agree with your own. And I, I didn't know how deep I could love until um, we met Sawyer. And all within a month of Sawyer being born, uh, Chelsea had graduated from medical school. I think Sawyer was like three or four days old when we went to her graduation. Um, she had been assigned to the pediatric residency program at um, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. So within a couple weeks, we said our, our bittersweet goodbyes to many of you. And with our three-week-old son, we moved to Portland for Chelsea to begin her career as a doctor and specifically a pediatrician. Um, so since then, a little over a year and a half now is how long it's been, and we're kind of right after the, the middle marker of her residency program. Um, Chelsea has been working astronomical, I would say borderline unethical, it would seem, hours, um, but it's saving children's lives, so I guess there's not much more important that you could do. Um, Sawyer has been growing like a weed, and that's not a Portland joke, unless if you think it's funny. Uh, <laughs> and he's learning new things every day. Um, I've been enjoying my, my job as a, a stay-at-home dad since we moved. Uh, it's, it's a very mentally demanding job, um, having to be in charge of a toddler's survival and thrival. I made that word up, but if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and sometimes it's a physically demanding job, too, because he's getting big and heavy. <laughs> but for any of its monotony and stress, it's so amazing to get to be there for every moment of discovery and growth that Sawyer experiences. We usually have a full week, Sawyer and I, between visits to the Children's Museum, to the Oregon Zoo, which is just down the street. Um, we attend Sawyer's weekly Tiny Jumpers class, um, going to church, which Sawyer finally has learned to love, like he's visibly excited about when I tell him we're going to go. And of course, our weekly story time at the local library. Uh, where I am usually the only dad in a class of like 25 kids. Uh, but it's okay, because Sawyer and I are cool that way. Chelsea and I wonder who Sawyer will grow up to be, as I'm sure every parent wonders of their kid. Um, but if his current passions are any indication, uh, he'll probably be like an athletic librarian <laughs> or a teacher. Um, he loves to play, to play sports, and he is obsessed with books. He has like 50 books that he pulls out every day, like twice a day, because I always put them back. He pulls them back out, and he just flips through them all. I couldn't be more proud of him. So that's just a little introduction to, to help you know who's, who's talking at you if you, if you don't know me and, and my family. But like I said, we're excited to be here. We're excited to um, get to spend some time with you guys. You're probably wondering when I'm ever going to get to the sermon, and uh, I'm just going to come clean with you guys. I'm out of practice. Um, I spend my days feeding, with, uh, feeding, playing with, and changing the diapers of a 21-month-old. Uh, <laughs> I still read a ton, as I just mentioned. I read a ton I, about theology, ministry, the Bible, listen to podcasts all the time. But I don't get the chance to teach very often these days. So while I say I'm as sharp as ever mentally, not that that's saying much, um, I'm a bit rusty in the public communication side. 
So when Pastor Dave invites me to come and speak, and the expectation is like a 30 to 40 minute message, uh, I, I just figured I'll like kill 10 of those minutes with small talk. Um, just help me get there. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but seriously. Would you guys pray with me before we jump in? Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this chance we have to gather as a church family. Thank you for bringing us together as a church family. And God, we just pray that as we look at your word, as we look at Jesus, you would speak to our hearts, that you would call us and, and challenge us. And uh, God, we just pray that our ears would be open this morning. In, in your name, amen. Okay, for real now. You've been in a series walking through the Gospel of Mark. I, I love this method of teaching and learning the kind of the section by section, passage by passage. It's actually what we do at our current church that we attend right now. And uh, today we're looking at the next section of Mark, which is chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. I've titled the sermon this morning, Introducing the Kingdom, because as we're about to find out, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. There are different approaches we could take to studying scripture, um, kind of different levels, if you will. We've got the microscopic level where we could look at each word individually and its original meaning. We could um, even consider the various pauses between words and sentences and thoughts. There's the surface level, which is kind of just as you read it, the sentences and the paragraphs, um, just as you read is, is what you learn. And there's the bird's eye view, which is where you step back and you look at the themes and the plot and the connections um, that the author is making throughout his, his book or letter or um, whatever we're reading, in this case, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start this morning with a surface-level approach, just read through the passage, make some notes on it, some observations, and then we're going to look at where this event fits into the broader narrative and what it is Jesus is accomplishing here. So if you'll read with me, it'll be up on the screen, I'm sure. Mark 3, starting in verse 7, we're just going to read through our passage this morning. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edumia, the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits, impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So just a quick catch-up to, to give us the context of where we're at. Um, we look at Jesus, who um, grew up in Nazareth, which is a small town in the region of Galilee, which we were reading about this morning. Um, he grew up in Nazareth, where he was allegedly a carpenter under his adopted father, Joseph. When the time came for Jesus to begin his public ministry, which he kicked off with the turning of water into wine at a wedding in Cana, just down the, the road from Nazareth, um, he then soon, soon after moved up to the fishing village of Capernaum, um, which is the outskirts of this city, this little fishing village that we, we find this story that we're reading this morning. Right before our passage, and as you guys heard about last week, Jesus had healed a man with a shriveled hand, and he healed him on the Sabbath day, which is kind of a no-no, as, as you guys learned. And this was kind of the boiling point with the, the local religious leaders. They were already wary of Jesus for claiming to forgive sins, which is something only God can do, and for eating with sinners and tax collectors, which is unheard of. They were probably jealous 
and afraid of Jesus' explosion in popularity. I mean, he had just begun his public ministry, and already he was drawing crowds from all over the place. I'm sure they were especially concerned about the things that Jesus was teaching and claiming about himself, calling himself the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus was rocking the boat. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders there, together with the Herodians, the, the political leaders there, they were plotting together to wipe him out, to have him killed. Jesus knew that there was still much work to be done. He had just begun his, what we know will be a three-year public ministry. And so instead of confronting the leaders and maybe trying to defend himself, he took off into the outskirts of town along with a newly formed band of disciples, including both men and women, who had seen that there was something special about Jesus, that he was someone worth following. So it seems Jesus and his disciples were preparing to go across the lake and continue his ministry in the next town, but they couldn't help but notice they were being followed by a large, a massive crowd. Word had been spreading fast about how Jesus was healing people and casting out demons, this man that no one had ever seen something like that before. And so crowds from all over started pouring into Galilee and through Capernaum, even from as far as Sidon, which was over 30 miles to the north, and even as far as Jerusalem, which was over 60 miles to the south. And in that time, that's a long ways. These crowds consisted of different people, spectators, I'm sure, who had heard about all this going on and wanted to go see it for themselves. They wanted to see this Jesus guy. They wanted to see him healing people. I mean, I would want to. And then I'm sure there was also the sick people and their friends and family who helped them get there who came to Jesus you know, in desperation wanting to be healed. And the crowd was so massive, it tells us, and people were so desperate to get to Jesus that he had to have his disciples prepare a boat to cast off from shore a little ways. And before all of us introverts get too excited about that and think that Jesus is fleeing from a crowd, which is exactly what we would do, uh, let me clarify, this wasn't to escape. It wasn't an escape plan. He was simply making a way to address the crowd without being overrun. He wasn't like, let's get out of here. So now Mark's account is a little ambiguous as to what exactly occurs um, next here, but the corresponding accounts in Matthew and Luke, the other two synoptic gospels that together a lot of their accounts um, correlate, they make it clear that Jesus healed many, if not all, of the people who came to him there, the sick, the, the demon-possessed, the, the blind, the lame, who, who knows what, what kind of people were in the crowd, and, and he also taught them. This was kind of Jesus' MO throughout his earthly ministry. He would, he would draw a crowd, he would heal them, he would cast out demons. Sometimes he would even feed them the whole lot, 5,000 one time plus, um, and he would teach them while he had his captive audience. And lastly, concerning verse 11 of our passage, it's a little confusing as to what's going on here. Jesus had been casting out demons that had been possessing or afflicting people, and it seems that he is telling those impure spirits, as our passage calls them, not to talk about him, which at first glance, like, why would you do that? And I'm not an expert on demonology and how this dynamic worked exactly, but there is a commonly held take within the Bible scholar community on why Jesus would tell them to keep quiet. It's kind of like I said earlier. Jesus had a job to do. He knew that there was much to be done. He didn't have time to be defending himself before the religious leaders and the political leaders because he would be doing that in every town that he came across. And not only that, but as soon as those leaders really caught on to what he was teaching and claiming, basically that he is God in flesh, uh, Jesus knew that he would be executed for blasphemy 
by the religious leaders for treason, by the political leaders. See, the religious leaders couldn't allow someone to go around claiming to be the son of God with the authority of the father. And the political leaders couldn't allow someone to go around drawing these massive crowds and claiming to be their lord and king when Caesar was the true king of the Roman Empire. So basically, however it worked out that demons can tell people about Jesus, whether it's like by possessing them or um, speaking through people or influencing minds, who knows? The point is, Jesus knew that he wasn't long for this world with the things that he was teaching and claiming. And he needed to prolong his ministry as long as he needed to to accomplish his purposes. And so that's how I read that, that part of the passage, that Jesus is doing what he needs to do to accomplish his purposes in his earthly ministry. There are many accounts throughout the Gospels that are similar to this one, in which Jesus was healing and teaching crowds of people. Instead of going microscopic with this one and digging into the intricacies of this specific event, I want to take a step back and go to the bird's eye view and try to answer the question, what was Jesus' purpose in this event and the others like it? What was he trying to accomplish with his earthly ministry? And obviously it's not just trying to accomplish because he did accomplish and he always does. Um, And also I'm not just talking about the cross here. Obviously that is a primary objective of Jesus, to, to die on the cross, to pay the price, to die a sacrificial death, paying the ultimate price for our sins, and also purchase our freedom from slavery to sin. So yes, that was one of Jesus's and probably his main purpose in coming to earth. But if that was his only purpose here, he could have gotten straight to it. He could have turned himself into the Galilean uh, leaders and said, all right, do with me what you will, Um, which is basically what happens just three years later in Jerusalem. Instead, he spends three years on the road teaching people and healing people. And so the question is, why? What was he doing in this story and in the grand scheme of his time on earth? I think if we take a step back to chapter 1 of Mark, uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which had begun there in the region of Galilee, his home, home region, uh, it tells us exactly what he was doing. It says in verse 14 of Mark 1, after John was put in prison, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So basically we had John the Baptist who was heralding the coming of the Son of God, who would be Jesus. He was paving the way, making ready um, people to receive him. And the coming of Jesus, which we call the incarnation, God putting on flesh, um, that marked the initiation of the kingdom of God. This is the reason for the three years of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom of heaven on earth and introducing humanity to the ways of his kingdom. That's why he spent three years going around healing people and teaching. That's why he didn't just go straight to, all right, let me, pay the, let me be the sacrifice. When the Father sent his only Son to put on flesh and become one of us, that initiated the beginning of the kingdom of heaven breaking into earth. And when Jesus died upon the cross and then raised to life three days later, he not only purchased the forgiveness of our sins, but he also ransomed us from our slavery to sin. So that now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, humanity could begin to participate in the inbreaking kingdom of God. It's this tension of the already but not yet. They call it the eschatological tension. 
that obviously God's kingdom on earth is not yet fully realized. It would only take a 10-second look at our current news to tell that that's not the case. But since the moment Jesus came, the kingdom of God has been slowly invading earth through his people. Until one day, upon Jesus' return, it will be completed. It will be fully realized, the reconciliation of heaven and earth. And here's why this is important. This is my main point this morning. The kingdom of God is here. It has already been initiated, announced, and proven by Jesus himself. All the miracles Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, they served several purposes. One was to provide evidence of his divinity, because only God could do all the things that he was doing. And not only the healings and the casting out demons, but only God can forgive sins as he did. The other purpose, though, was to provide a glimpse of the kingdom of God, where all things will be redeemed and restored. The sick healed, the blind will see, the lame will walk. That's just how it is in the perfect kingdom of God. And Jesus was giving everyone a taste of what was to come and what was already beginning to happen. You know, the thing is, a lot of Christians get caught up in the end game, that future day when Jesus will return. And of course, that's important. That's basically the climax of the human story. But that's not the only thing Jesus taught us. The kingdom of God is here now, and we are called to participate in its expansion, to be ambassadors to those who have yet to hear the good news. But a lot of Christians today have this kind of doomsday, bunkered-down mentality where it's, you know, survive the big, bad world and, and try to keep yourself from being tarnished by it until Jesus comes back to save us. And they've got the Jesus part right, but they're missing out on the Great Commission to go into the world and make disciples, to be agents of reconciliation, to offer hope and justice and peace wherever we go. One of my favorite authors who happens to be a pastor, his name is Joshua Ryan Butler, and he says in his book, one of the earliest challenges the church had to face was Gnosticism, a heresy that said salvation was about Jesus getting us out of earth and into heaven. It derived from an outside philosophy that devalued the created world. Against this, the church proclaimed loudly, boldly, and clearly that God's purpose in Jesus is not to get us out of earth and into heaven, but to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of sin to redeem creation to himself. See, Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Every knee will bow before him, and he will reign forever. And that's not just some far-off fantasy. It has already begun. We can start learning and living the ways of his kingdom even now. So that begs the question, what is his kingdom like? What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, first of all, Jesus himself is exhibit A. His life, that he lived a perfect life as a human being. Anything and everything that we know about Jesus, we can be sure is true about the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So that's a, an easy and a good place to start. And that pretty much goes for anything to do with Christianity. But we don't only have the accounts of his life to look at. We also have his teachings on this very topic. I'm sure some of you have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty popular. It's all about the ways of the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching this crowd that my kingdom is here. I've, I've initiated it, and this is how you can participate. Along with most of the things Jesus taught could be applied to the kingdom. But let's take a quick look at the Sermon on the Mount, just the beginning of it. I want to look at... Um, 
So the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5, goes for a couple chapters. We're just going to look at 3 through 10 verses. We call these the Beatitudes. And Jesus teaches here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From the Sermon on the Mount, from even this right here, we, we learn that the kingdom of God is free of violence. It is for people who love their enemies and seek peace. It's not easy to do, but that's what he's calling us to do. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are humble and pure and always seeking righteousness and justice, not only in their circle, but for those around them. As Jesus goes on to teach in this sermon, he wants us to be generous with pure motives, not falling into the trap of idolizing money. He says we can only serve one master. And this is just a little snippet of Jesus' teaching on how to live his way. He later boils it down to what is called the, the greatest commandment, to basically love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the way that we are called to live. That is the way of the kingdom. Did you know that the first disciples, the early church, they weren't even known as Christians. They wouldn't know what you were talking about if you're like, are you a Christian? They were most often referred to as followers of the way, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom of God. And I want to end my, my message this morning with some practical application regarding this way. I want to ask you and kind of challenge you with these questions. Are, are you living the way of Jesus? How are you participating in the reconciliation of heaven and earth? Are you helping or hurting the growth and expansion of God's kingdom on earth? I want to take a look at these questions from a few different levels, kind of going big to small. At a societal level, are you engaging in your civic responsibilities to vote and to influence our nation and our states and our cities? to best reflect the ways of God's kingdom. Maybe next time you go to vote on something or even to share your political opinions, um, stop and think, is this the option that lines up best with the values Jesus taught and modeled us, modeled for us? And I know our government is messed up in a lot of ways and our politicians are messed up in a lot of ways. And sometimes it's not clear. I think Colette even said when, when worship was ending, it seems like the lines are blurred these days. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's hard, but maybe other times, maybe sometimes the Holy Spirit will give us guidance to know how best to influence our society at a, at a societal level. Yeah. Now I want to look at a community level. Are you representing Jesus well? In your school, if you're a student, in your kid's school, if you're a parent, in your workplace, at your kid's sports games, with your neighbors, are you being a good example of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You know, I used to think that kingdom work, as we call it, was for pastors and missionaries because if it didn't involve saving people's souls, it didn't matter that much. Um, that's how I used to think anyway. Um, now I realize 
that the kingdom that kingdom work can happen in almost every profession or environment because every day some of you here are participating in healing people both mind and body some of you are helping in bringing justice even in the smallest of ways maybe you can use your platform and your skills to restore someone's dignity many of you are serving those in need in one way or another and even in the most mundane of jobs you can be a light to those around you spreading hope and positivity and kindness show people a world that they want to believe in show them the kingdom of heaven so that they'll want to know more at a familial level and i think this includes your church family your close friends are you displaying forgiveness and compassion to those who have hurt you or wronged you are you caring for each other's needs do your unsaved friends and family know that you love them no matter what they choose to believe or how differently than you they choose to live are you showing them the love of god and lastly at a personal level are you striving to check your motives daily to pause and consider what god would ask of you each day and each week are you spending time with the one who you are supposed to be representing these are just a few thoughts but if you'll commit to studying the bible to spending some time fleshing this out there are an infinite number of ways that we can participate in the reconciliation of heaven and earth the inbreaking kingdom of god as citizens of heaven imagine what it would look like if all of us who call ourselves christians would work together to advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth that even if we can't change the world we could at least strive to change our homes our communities our neighborhoods if we would devote ourselves to learning the ways of the kingdom and living them out in our day-to-day -day lives i think people will see jesus in us instead of churches being viewed as places of scandal and corruption these days they would be known as shelters for the needy the broken the lost as they should be the kingdom of god is here it's here let us strive to live as good citizens in our lord's kingdom let's show the world the way to live that jesus offers us the way that leads to life and life to the fullest that's what i want to challenge you guys with this morning and myself as well would you guys pray with me as we close out father we thank you so much that you did not create us and then abandon us but god even here in our sin you chose to wade into our mess and pull us out. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to not only die for us, a gift, a sacrifice that we can never deserve, but to live a life as a model for us, to teach us the ways of your kingdom that we can begin to participate in even now. So that when that day does come when Jesus will come back and make all things right, make all things new, we we'll already be living in that trajectory. We'll already be um recognizing the ways of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to really take seriously the burden and responsibility it is to be your representative to the world. That each in each of our lives individually people would see Jesus, that in our families, in our neighborhoods and in our church, God, that people would see Jesus and see the ways that you've called us to live and see that it brings life, it brings joy and it brings peace. So God, we We give this to you. We accept this challenge and commission that you've given us, 
And God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would help guide us and empower us to live it out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, for braving the snow. Hopefully it's not too bad out there. It's so good to see you guys. I hope to see some of you out in the foyer. And uh, we'll be back in the series of Mark next week. And we'll see you next time.